Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you, and, and that includes even Louis. Uh, <laughs> I always want to greet a Navy man. Uh, we're glad you're here for the class, and uh, we're going to start this morning real quickly here with a video. It's about three minutes, not long. You'll be able to see it right up here. The video is from a man by the name of Rob Bell. How many of you are familiar with him? Okay, you've heard his name. Rob Bell, just a teeny bit of background on him. He is a graduate of Wheaton College. Went there for four years. And not only that, but his father, who is also named Rob Bell, graduated about 20-some years earlier than his son from Wheaton. And one of my friends in the small group back in Colorado that I lead graduated with him. So Rob Bell graduated from Wheaton College, then went to Fuller Seminary, prepared for the ministry, um, got out of Fuller, came to Flint, Michigan. And there he was in a church as an associate pastor. He, all of a sudden they discovered he is a good speaker. He can really speak well. They gave him the Sunday evening service. And within a short period of time, there were a thousand people coming to hear this young man teach and preach the Word of God. He got this idea in his head that he was attracting a lot of people that he would go and start his own church. But he didn't go to another town. He did it in Flint. And he started Mars Hill Bible Church. And once he started this church, it grew to somewhere around 10,000 people coming to hear this man. Until all of a sudden, one day he began to preach, there is no hell. He wrote a book on this called Love Wins. And this little video that you're going to see is on a website by Denny Burke, who is, was one of the deans, I guess, at uh, Boyce College next to Southern Seminary. And I found this little video there, and I want you to see, I want you to watch this guy, I want you to hear how well he speaks, and how he draws people in. And I want you to hear what he's saying, because he's summarizing his book called Love Wins. So we're ready, take a look at this, three minutes, and then I'll come back up. Several years ago, we had an art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings, and we put them on display, and there was this one piece that had a quote from Gandhi in it. And lots of people found this piece compelling. They'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in or reflect on it, but not everybody found it that compelling. Somewhere in the course of the art show, somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece, and on the note, they had written, reality check, he's in hell. Gandhi's in hell. He is. And someone knows this for sure and, and felt the need to let the rest of us know. Will only a few select people make it to heaven? And will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? 
Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or converted or being born again? How does one become one of these few? And then there is the question behind the questions. The real question, what is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how could that ever be good news? This is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. They see it as an endless list of absurdities and inconsistencies, and they say, why would I ever want to be a part of that? See, what we believe about heaven and hell is incredibly important because it exposes what we believe about who God is and what God is like. What you discover in the Bible is so surprising, unexpected, and beautiful that whatever we've been told or taught, the good news is actually better than that, better than we could ever imagine. The good news is that love wins. By the way, I'm not recommending you buy that book, <laughs> just so you will know. If you have it, I would recommend using it as kindling to start your backyard barbecue. That might be good. What did you think about this guy? Good speaker, right? Extemporaneous. Yes, John? Yeah, he's very charismatic. And you hear him use one term you often hear these people use, that God sends people to hell. That's not true. God just honors our decision, our choices. Oh, exactly. One thing, I, there's one thing in here he said that I resonate with and I think is true. One thing that I heard him say. Did you catch it? What you believe about heaven and hell is all important. What you believe about heaven and hell is all important. He said that. Let me tell you what's happened in his life since then. The last I could find on him, he now is employed by Oprah Winfrey and has a radio program. I don't know if that's still going on, but that was going on for a while because you could go online and click on Rob Bell's Theology and you will, one of the things that comes up is an interview between he and Oprah Winfrey in which he is saying several years after this took place, he is saying on that that he believes that there will only be a year or two from the time of that interview with Oprah that the whole evangelical church will embrace homosexual marriage. He's taken a terrific fall. Once he gave up the doctrine of hell and ceased to believe in it and started preaching that and teaching that, he has come just down the slippery slope. He no longer believes that the Bible, of course, is the Word of God. That would be one of the starting points, wouldn't it? 
because the Bible is full of information about hell and about heaven and about who goes where. The interesting thing is, Rob Bell concludes now that anybody can get to heaven no matter what your background is, no matter what your faith is, as long as you're a good person. You could be a Muslim, a good Muslim, you could go to heaven. You could be Gandhi, you could go to heaven as a Hindu. So it really doesn't make any difference about the Christian faith or about where you are with Christ. He's gone down the slippery slope, which is what happens when you remove yourself from believing the truth of Scripture. I just wanted you to see this is not only is he still out there preaching and teaching these things, but he's influencing people. He's influencing people. Uh, I had a little um, note here, um, which I just covered up, I think, giving you some statistics about what people... Now it's a dis... Oh, there it is. Hidden down here. Here's what some surveys say. If you could go online and look, the Barna surveys and the Pew surveys. Just uh, interesting, in the U.S. today, only 58% of people interviewed said they believe in hell. 50% of adults in the United States of America. Guess what the ages of 18 to 29, what percent of them do you think believe in hell? 21%. Only 21% of people in this country believe in hell. Evangelicals, people who identify themselves as evangelicals, 82%. 82%. And then you'd have to ask those 82%, what kind of hell do you believe in? Because there are evangelicals today, a number of evangelicals that are changing their opinion and that are saying things just like he's saying, God is too loving to send people to a place like that. He's too loving. Or they would say, they would teach annihilationism. How many of you know what that is? That the wicked at death and then the judgment will cease to exist. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire and they will burn up. I'm sorry, how does somebody that really believes in Jesus go from that to that? That's a good question. We'll talk about that if we can hold that a little bit as we get down into some of this about what's changing and how people come up with these kind of views. But, but it's surprising that even among evangelical people who identify, views seem to be changing. It, it, I, I was talking to my wife on the way down here today, and I said, you know, when we were growing up, and a lot of you are growing up, because I can look around and see we're similar in age, might be ahead of some of you, might be behind some of you. But when we were growing up, I heard a lot about heaven and hell. There's not a lot of preaching about heaven and hell these days that I can see, even among evangelicals. You don't hear a whole lot about that. So one of the things I think, you know, in answer to your question, people are, it, it's off the radar. They don't think about it. And if they do think about it, it's kind of like more like a purgatory. You know, that you, some place that you can get out of 
after a little time of serving there and paying off your penalty and uh, straightening up a bit, or it's annihilationism that there is no eternal suffering. Some are saying things like this, God would not even allow, he, he would not even enable you to enjoy heaven if you knew that you had loved ones who are in hell for eternity suffering. So God, God wouldn't do that to you. You couldn't even enjoy heaven. But what's happening is men are beginning to come to the scriptures with their thinking and their minds and they're reading into scripture. They're finding what they want to find. And they're writing out what they don't like. Obviously, with, with Rob Bell, he doesn't believe the scriptures are inspired and God-breathed and without error. He's looking at them and he's finding what he wants to find there. And then he's drawing his conclusions. And he's teaching them. I don't know how many people out of that large church when he finally left. And I think the story is he was asked to leave eventually, which was good. But I don't know how many he took with him. I don't know how many he persuaded. But it's interesting... As, as you think about and as you talk about the subjects, you recognize that not only are we in a changing society, what people believe about heaven, what people believe about hell, but the evangelical church that supposedly holds to the gospel of Christ is changing. That's sad. It is hard today to find a good church that, will really, that really believes this Bible from Genesis to Revelation and teaches and preaches it verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, and believes it. People leave out what they don't, they don't like. Or they begin to say, well, it, it, it contains the Word of God, but it's not all of it's not all the Word of God. By the way, the, we had a family, a missionary family in our church in New York, in the Bible church that I was in there, sent their kid to Houghton Bible College. Anybody heard of Houghton up in New York? Sent their kids to Houghton Bible College and found out professors there were teaching that very thing. The Bible contains the Word of God, but it really isn't fully the Word of God. My son Dan, the youngest son, who served as an intern here when Roy was pastoring uh, one summer and loved the, loved the time here, He's pastoring back in Colorado now. He went to Southern Seminary uh, to work on his Master of Divinity there. When he was at Messiah College, he had a teacher saying to him, one-third of what, this is in the Bible department, one-third of what Paul wrote was the Word of God. One-third of what Paul wrote was his own thinking. And one-third of what he wrote, he was just wrong on. That's in a Bible college, in an evangelical Bible college. Azusa Pacific had students out this past year when the faculty came down strong against homosexuality. Students were protesting at Azusa Pacific College about their stand. In other words, protesting against the administration. Things are changing. And one thing for sure that I hope you see in this class, and, and I hope you see in everything that you get at Riverbend, you've got to hold to the Word of God. 
And there's all kinds of people out there today who would move you from that position. All kinds of people. I'll share just a few quotes even as we get in this today. Now, you, you have some hand, handouts before you. One of them gives you the little outline of the nine weeks that we're going to be together. Um, there's going to be four, four classes on hell and five on heaven. I thought you'd definitely need to weigh the other end. <laughs> so, four on hell. And, and here are the titles. Here's where we're going. What is the changing view of hell in the world and the church today? What are the current alternatives given to explain away hell? What kind of rationale are people using? What are they coming up with? What is the biblical view of hell and why is this all important for us to grasp, believe, and understand? How does the Bible describe hell and matters related to it? Then we move, thank goodness, off of that and move to the other uh, side of it. <clears throat> And it's, first of all, the grand hope of heaven and its importance for believers. The nature of the present heaven and its occupants. Some refer to that as the intermediate heaven. When Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, where is that when you die right now? That's in heaven with Him at, where He is at the right hand of the Father. But there's coming a day in Revelation 20 in which the final great judgment occurs, and after that is ushered in, in in Revelation 21, the new heavens and new earth. And we will receive glorified bodies, like Christ's glorified body, and we will live with Christ on that new earth for all eternity, for the rest of eternity. Can you imagine waking up in the morning and, and not looking at your chart to see if you have a doctor appointment? <laughs> not wondering if you know, you're going to have an accident and asking somebody to pray for you as you go from one place to another because you might get robbed, you might get, you might get in a wreck. That day is coming. The nature of the present heavens and its occupants, the necessary and glorious resurrection of all things, the removal of the curse and all that is involved with that, the composition of the new heavens and the new earth, What's that going to be like? And our relation and life with God and others on the new earth. Those are the kind of things we're going to talk about. Now, one other page I want you to, to glance at with me. There's a little outline for today, which we'll get in here in just a moment. This is, here's some things we hope to accomplish. There's 20, somehow I worked that out, there was 20 questions here, and they all fit on one page. I probably just stopped at 20. I think that's what I did. But let me read these to you. Look at the list as we do. Questions to ponder according to the teaching of Scripture. Is there a specific place called Hades where the wicked are sent after death? In other words, right now. What, where would you go in the Bible to find such a teaching? Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. Where did the rich man go? Hades. He's in Hades. He's there waiting for the final day of judgment and he is waiting until that day and then he will be with all of the wicked cast into the lake of fire. So number two, will the wicked dead suffer consciously there until the day of final judgment? And we certainly see that, don't we? We see him alive there. He doesn't want to be there, but he is there. 
Number three, will the wicked... By the way, I bring that up because those who say there is no hell because we're annihilated, I always want to say to them, well, what about the people in Hades right now? Aren't they suffering pretty much like that? And, and isn't that maybe for... Well, let's, let's put it this way. The rich man, if, if Jesus was... If, if he had somebody in mind, and, and there are people who think that that parable in particular had real people in mind because he names them. That's one of the few parables, if not the only one, where people are named. So people would say, that rich man probably exists. And he was in Hades at the time that Jesus told the story. How long ago was that? A couple thousand years. So he's been there a while. Number three, will the wicked dead then be cast into the lake of fire to suffer for all eternity? Will all who are not born again and trusting Christ be counted as wicked? Is there any possible escape from eternal judgment after one's death? Well, obviously the Catholic Church teaches that um, because they teach the doctrine of purgatory. Is the biblical teaching on eternal judgment an essential of the Christian faith? Is that something essential that we believe? Number seven, will those that have never heard the gospel of Christ be judged forever? Think about that one. What about those who have never heard? We had a, a young man come before our ordination council back in, <clears throat> excuse me, Omaha, Nebraska. And we were asking the question, that kind of question with him. What about the people who have never heard? There are some say, for the people who have never heard, that they're going to be okay. Because they didn't hear. So they're okay. Well, that would be a good reason not to take the gospel out. If you think about it, better off that they didn't hear that than that they heard and rejected. But we were asking him, we said, how, how do you... Um, what do you think about people in the Old Testament? Did they have to put their faith in the Messiah to come? Did they have to believe like we do that God had promised Abraham's seed would be our Savior? That, that all who are going to be rightly related to Him have to trust in that one like Simeon, like Anna? Waiting in the temple, waiting to see the Lord's what? Holding Simeon, holding the Messiah and saying, The day has come. The day has come. <coughs> He's here. All these years we've waited. His provision has arrived. So we asked this, this young man, what, what, what do you think they had to believe? He said, oh, I think they just had to have some general faith in God. So we put him through a six-month study program <laughs> before we passed final judgment and said, Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament. Tonight we're going to go through the book of Isaiah, John. The whole book, I can't believe that in one night. 66 chapters. I couldn't sleep last night thinking about that. Um, 66 chapters, we're going to overview. Christ is all over that book. Isaiah 53. All over the book of Isaiah. He's the king that's coming. He's the suffering servant. The new heavens and new earth are written about by Isaiah the prophet. The Old Testament is... Christ-centered. Remember Jesus on the Emmaus Road? When He sits down with the two men walking along, what does He do with them? 
he says, he takes the Old Testament and he starts with Genesis, goes right through to Malachi, and he says, this book is full of teaching about me. And then he did the same thing with the disciples. That's why we see in the New Testament the disciples telling us all these things they learn. Isaiah is quoted numerous times in the New Testament, maybe the most quoted book. But it's all over the place because it talked about Christ. Well, this guy came back six months later and he said, I get it. I get it now. It wasn't just a general faith in God that He existed. It was a faith in His provision, the Messiah, the Christ that would come. So after six months, he came back and, and said he got it. I'm, I'm glad we asked those questions because young men going into the ministry need to answer them. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, both in the old and in the new. No difference except the amount of knowledge that we have of that Messiah. Ours is much, much greater than theirs in the Old Testament. But they look for the one to come, like Simeon and like Anna. And now I've lost my place here. I got so sidetracked. <laughs> kind of like Pastor Roy, you know. I used to listen to him, and he would go off <laughs> on one thing or another. Okay. Excuse me? Seven? Okay, eight. Are the Father and Son just to punish? Are they just to punish sinners for all eternity? Can we really be certain about the things that happen to a person after death? Can we really know that? Because this guy, Rob Bell, would kind of say, oh, we can't really know all that stuff. Do saints that die since Christ's ascension go to heaven until the judgment? Do saints currently in heaven exist in spirit form awaiting the resurrection? Now these are all questions that we want to answer. Will resurrected saints live on the new earth for the rest of eternity? Will God the Father and God the Son reside on the new earth with the saints? Will the new earth be this earth redeemed and with the, the curse removed? Or will it be, like the Lutherans said, will it be a completely brand new earth? Reformers and the Lutherans um, disagreed on that a little bit. <clears throat> Number 15. Will life on the, on the new earth be much like our life on the present earth? Will life on the new earth be a time of joy such as we have never known? Will life on the new earth be far more glorious than life in heaven now? now one of the reasons for that question is Revelation chapter 6. Where the saints who are in heaven are crying out, what? How long, O oh Lord, how long until you, your Son returns and He fulfills all the plan of redemption? In other words, when you die now and you go immediately into the Lord's presence as a believer and you're there, you're waiting for the final fulfillment of all the plan of redemption. And so here they are crying out, and Revelation was written a few years ago, crying out, how long until that day when all is completed and we will be together in glorified bodies on the new earth. Would grasping the glory of the future of heaven help us to live more faithfully now? Help us to live more carefree now? If we really knew that, if we could really get a handle on what's it like? What's it going to be like? Should knowledge of the glory that is future cause us to love Christ even more? Absolutely. 
But these are some of the things that we're going to explore as we uh, go through these nine weeks. And I think we'll get most of them. We'll try and see how that goes. Let's see how we're doing on time. Okay, take a look at the little outline today that we're looking at. <clears throat> First question, what does the unbelieving world think about hell in our day? Well, we've already looked at that a little bit in the survey. Average person, about one out of two, believe there's no hell. A little bit more than that would believe in heaven. But um, we see that the unbelieving world, as far as they're concerned, when it comes to hell, they don't give it much attention. They don't give it much thought. And even if they did, they would probably not be thinking about it as it is described in the Word of God. Probably be very different. So, I can't validate all the statistics before you, but we know, and if you're talking to people out there, and sometimes you, I would encourage you to engage in those kinds of conversations, that's probably a good way to get in the gospel. Say, what do, you, what do you think about a hell? Do you believe in hell? What about heaven? Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe that people are going to go spend eternity in one place or the other? And then you can get to the question, and by the way, where will you go? And on what basis will you go there? That's why Jesus came, isn't it? Jesus came to save sinners. He came not for the righteous, but He came for sinners to save us, to bring us to Himself, that we might be with Him for all eternity. What a glorious thing. When we leave this life, to be absent from the body is to be present with God. And to be present with God is to be waiting with Him for the new body and that new day when we will be with Him for all eternity. Number two, has this always been the prevailing thought of the world in regards to hell? No. No, it hasn't. When I grew up, I don't know what, exactly what the statistics were then. A lot more people, though, went to church, heard the gospel, heard preaching, believed in hell, believed in heaven. It's a different world out there today. Think of our universities and what they're learning and what they're being taught. That's scary. Even if you send your kids, I've had people call me and say, what Christian college do you recommend I send my child to? And they give me a list and I went, this may take a while. Have you got a few minutes? Because I hear more and more about even Christian colleges, much less the world and what they're teaching, what they have to say. It's frightening. But it hasn't always been that way. Number three, what has caused the view of the world to change in regards to hell? I think there are probably several things, and we've already touched on some of those a bit, but let's just review them. There is an increasing attack in our day, have you noticed, against Christians, against the Bible, against the Word of God. An increasing attack on what we stand for, what we hold up as valuable. So because of that increasing attack, the things that we believe are put down. 
you don't believe in hell, do you? Those Christians, my goodness, that's horrible. This is, this is exactly where Rob Bell has gone. He's gone the way of the world. Somewhere along the way, and here's another thing I would say about Rob Bell. This is, this is an interesting observation, I think. Rob Bell went to seven years at least, if not eight, of Christian education and ended up like this, like we saw him on the screen. So my conclusion is, Rob Bell, in all of that time, never knew Christ. Never knew the Savior. Now that's scary. But we have people in our churches today. One of the men in the class on Tuesday night was, was asking, uh, do you think that, because I'd made the statement that everyone who's part of the New Covenant, everyone is truly part of the New Covenant, will never be lost and is saved for eternity and has eternal life and will be with Christ. Everyone a part of that new covenant. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 19? He said the reason that we allowed divorce under the old covenant was because of the hardness of your heart. You could be a member of the old covenant by being a physical descendant of Abraham, but you had no heart for God. And Moses said, we allowed, but it wasn't that way in the beginning. And that's where the new covenant's going, back to the beginning. Back to the beginning. So, if you're part of the new covenant, you're in it. And you have the Holy Spirit living within you to produce fruit for godliness. We're not perfect, but we confess, as, as uh, 1 John says, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. We keep on confessing. If we don't, men, our wives remind us to. <laughs> Mine does. And I appreciate that. But the issue is, the, the, the young man said, he said, well, you know, if you're, if you're truly a believer and you, and you were back under the old covenant... Were you just as saved as we are? Because you're saying it's the new covenant. And I said, yeah, these, these folks that were saved back there were saved by new birth too. You know what the Old Testament called it? Primarily, a couple of things. Primarily, it was circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy 29, right after in 28, Moses gives all of those, all of the, the, the uh, aftermath of sin, the curses that would be upon the Israelites for their sin. You get to chapter 29 and in the first four verses he says, but until this day God has not given you a circumcised heart. Men in the Old Testament and women too needed to be born again. Paul talks about in Romans 2 a circumcised what? Heart. He said, it's not the circumcision of the flesh, not whether you're circumcised or not circumcised. It's whether your heart is. It's whether your heart is. The sign of the old covenant was the Sabbath. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. To picture the circumcised heart, the circumcised inner man, the cutting away of the flesh so that we might have life. But everyone who's part of that new covenant is redeemed and saved, whether they were an Old Testament saint who are part and parcel of New Covenant truth and New Covenant reality, even though the New Covenant hasn't fully come. They're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, looking at Him 
And here's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. The natural man, the man who's just been born into this world, who's dead in spirit, who is dead, who is dying in his body, in his, in his mortal body, he says the natural man does not understand the things of God, their foolishness to him. They can only be understood spiritually. So what must take place first before Abraham even believes and is reckoned righteous in Genesis 15? He has to have new life. New life is, is the all-important issue. It's the beginning. That's why when I left Dallas Seminary as a four-point on the scale, on the Richter scale, a four-point Calvinist, it took me several years after that to finally embrace the fifth point. Dallas taught unlimited atonement. And then I finally came to see, no, it's definite atonement. He died for me. He died for you. He, sitting in front of a TV set watching Billy Graham one night when I didn't even know he was on TV, it was in the day before remote control you actually had to get up and walk across a, 10 feet across a rug, change your TV with your hand. You remember those days, Louis? <laughs> In those days, one night I came home from work as a young lieutenant at Lincoln, Nebraska, at the Air Force Base there, turned it on, and here's Billy Graham. And I thought, ah, I'm too lazy to go start change the channel. I'll just watch this a little bit. When that thing was over... I had become a new creature in Christ. Because in the back bedroom, on my knees, thanking God for what He did. Why did He do that for me? I don't know. Why did He do it for you? His grace. His mercy. We don't deserve that. But things are changing, folks. Things are changing in the church. Things are changing in the world. Christianity is under attack. Biblical teaching. Holding the Bible real and, and teaching it and valuing it. I see people all the time who get in trouble in their Christian life. And you know what the, one of the first things I find out is? They're not in the Word. They've neglected spiritual food. What would happen if you neglected physical food? going to have an impact. You're going to be weak. You might die. You can't neglect spiritual food. And I'll tell you who the greatest enemy of all is who wants to deceive and who is constantly attacking is Satan. Satan. He's alive and well. And he still bombards us. There are times, I don't know about you, but there are times when I feel spiritual attack from him. And I'll think, where did that thought come from? Where did that doubt come from? Where, where did that... What, what just happened here? It's spiritual attack. We need to be in the Word of God. It is God-breathed. It's spiritual food from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Don't neglect the Word of God. It teaches you everything you need to know for life and godliness. To neglect the Word is... is it's not going to do well. So the world is going downhill in terms of believing things that are important, that are in the Word of God, things that... I mean, here's what the Word of God says. You're alive 
my sister just said to me last night, she's even six years younger than I am. She has MS. She lives in Clearwater. We just went over to see her at over New Year's. She said last night, she said, Dwight, just in the last two day, days, two of my friends have died. She said, you know, life is short. I said, talk to me about it. <laughs> it is short. We're not going to be here forever. But we're going to be somewhere forever. And it's going to be one of two places. And they both start with H. We're either going to be in heaven or we're going to be in hell. That ought to grab our attention. That ought to motive us, motivate us to pray for people who are lost, who don't know, who don't understand. That ought to motivate us to share the gospel. That ought to motivate us to share that which can the Spirit can take and change hearts and change lives. And by the way, that's another thing the Old Testament says. For instance, in Ezekiel, he says, you have a heart of stone, but God's going to change that to a heart of what? Flesh. He's going to give you a new heart. That's all over the Old Testament too. But things are changing. Listen to this. In the visible church today, you would think that of all people, even though they believe in purgatory, that Roman Catholics would believe in hell. The percentage of Roman Catholics that believe in hell was 20% lower than evangelicals. Down around 60% for Roman Catholics. Um, here's an article uh, entitled, The Pope's Understanding of Hell Appears to Differ from Catholic Doctrine. That's the current Pope, Pope Francis. Listen to this. <clears throat> the most controversial bit was an answer the journalist apparently received to his question on the fate of unrepentant sinners. This was a, a journalist interviewing Pope Francis. Francis is quoted as saying something like, they're not punished. Now no, notice who he's talking about, unrepentant sinners. They're not punished. Those who repent obtain God's forgiveness and take their place among the ranks of those who contemplate Him, but those who do not repent and cannot be forgiven disappear. That sounds a little bit like annihilationism. A hell does not exist. The disappearance of sinning souls exists, is what he said. It appeared to contradict the catechism of the Catholic Church, its formal doctrinal statement. That document says the teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell where they suffer the punishments of hell. Did the Pope's words seem to line up with that? Things are changing. There's more here, and I could read that to you, but I think because of our time, I'll spare you a little bit here. So... Also, we know that things are changing in the evangelical church. Let me uh, pull up another article here about things changing. In re Here's an article talking about um, an independent theologian who runs a website, Rethinking Hell. Rethinking Hell. And who helps organize an annual conference on the topic. So he goes on to say in this, a traditional view of hell, however, does not necessarily mean fire and brimstone. I certainly wouldn't agree that hell is a place of literal fire or torment. 
I tend to be more favorable toward the metaphors that talk about hell as the absence of a love of God and that it would be a miserable existence. So, this is coming from some, quote, evangelicals and how they're feeling. Here's another guy. And this article is entitled, it's by Joel Michael Herbert. It's entitled, The Widening Gap Between Evangelical and Progressive Christians. Have you heard of progressives? Well, this guy's been part of evangelicals. I'll, I'll summarize what he says. He says, the only thing that we need to believe is what's in the creeds. Creeds. And then he goes on to say, well, the creeds don't mention anything about heaven and hell. Creeds don't mention anything about homosexuality. Creeds don't mention anything. And he just goes on and on. He said, let's just go back to the creeds. Now, some of the creeds were okay. Some of the creeds contained biblical truth. But um, here's, here's the kind of things he's saying that we need latitude in. He said, he calls them, for the evangelical church, he said, here's their sacred cows. Gay and transgender affirmation. Hell afterlife as, as uh, either annihilation of the wicked or universal salvation. That's, that's where he's going. That's another way that people remove hell. They say that ultimately everybody's going to be saved. That's kind of like a big purgatory that everybody eventually gets out of. And so there is no hell. There is no eternal judgment. He says another thing he doesn't like that we ought to drop is the inerrancy of Scripture. I wonder why. I wonder why, I wonder why he would want us to drop the inerrancy of Scripture. The doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. He doesn't like that one either. My goodness. What does he like? Well, he likes the creeds. Because the creeds leave these things out. Um, here, here's another little quote in his article. He says, you either stomach that the God you love and worship would knowingly create someone only to allow and destine them to die and go to a place created by Him of eternal conscious torment. Hmm. To be clear, I'm not dogging or on or denying any of these doctrines in particular except eternal conscious torment. Did you get that one? That's the one he's denying. I'll go ahead and dog hard on that one. I get all the reasons why some folks interpret the Scriptures the way they do, and I'm mostly on the fence myself with most of these topics, which probably helps fuel my angst. If I end up landing on the wrong side of the fence, am I going to be excommunicated or ostracized from my community, my mentors, my career? He suggests, let's just go back to the creeds. Let's go back to the creeds. So today's class basically is to just give you a little bit of an overview of the changing world we live in and the changing church. Next week, we're going to examine in much greater detail how uh, the, the topic is, what are the current alternatives given to explain away hell? Like universalism, like annihilationism. We'll look at those and we'll look at what men are saying. By the way, over the years, most of my favorite commentators uh, now are dead. That must say something about my age. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's with the Lord. John Stott was another one that I love to read and, and like. He's gone. But John Stott, of all people, 
ended up teaching and believing in annihilationism. Mm. And I thought, how in the world did he get there? But I have a letter I'll share with you next week, just some of the points he made as to what took him there. That man wrote so many good things. And yet before he died, he embraced the whole doctrine of the wicked just cease to exist. No such thing as conscious eternal suffering. Interestingly enough, we were created in Genesis, at least Genesis 1, 2, and 3, those early chapters talk about our creation and the fall. And we were created in the image of God. Mainly, what that means is we were created as spiritual beings. In the image of God, spiritual beings who are spiritually going to exist forever. What's the difference between us and the animal world, all the other created beings? They don't have a spirit. They weren't created in the image of God. They have physical life. But they don't have, the, they don't have a spirit. The spirit died in Genesis chapter 3. Our spirit died, became impotent, dead to, to any fellowship with God. But the spirit continues, and the spirit leaves our bodies, and it goes to either Hades or heaven, awaiting what occurs in Revelation 20, the final day of judgment and the final separation. So next week we're going to look a little bit more into that, see what is being said, see what the scripture says to counter that. Do you know who had more to say on the subject of hell than any other one in scripture? Jesus. And he said it very, very clearly. The one who came to save said that. The one who's never lied said anything false, never sinned. He said that more than anyone else in Scripture. So next week we're going to explore that. We're going to see what people are saying, see why it's false, and refute it with the Word of God. So let's pray, and then we thank you for coming, and I hope you enjoyed. I don't know who exactly provided the refreshments today, but thank you. I had some earlier. I might even have some after, if there's any left. If John back there hasn't gotten there and devoured it all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for the beginning today of this um, study series on hell and on heaven. Father, may you touch our hearts. May you remind us of the important, importance of these two doctrines. May it quicken us. May it cause us, Father, to look to you and to trust the word and to be thankful over and over that you have delivered us from this just punishment and made us your children and equipped us for eternal life with you on the new earth. I pray that you'd be with each one as we go to our, our separate homes, give us safety on the road. Bring us back again next week, Father, if it's your will. We commit all this to you in Jesus' precious and mighty and powerful name. Amen.